I became a whistleblower in the course of all of this. I guess I didn't think of myself as such at the time, but it was obvious that that's what I had done. And then they started to retaliate against me in more and more vicious ways. Hello everyone and welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. My name is Christopher Starke. The voice you just heard at the beginning belongs to Jim Wasserstrom. Jim had a long career as a diplomat with the United Nations and with the EU-S government and now he has his own consultancy on anti-corruption and integrity. In the interview with Matthew, he shares his fascinating story of how he blew the whistle on corruption within the UN mission UNMIC in Kosovo. The interview also covers whistleblower protection in the UN more generally and Jim's idea for an integrity sanctuary program specifically designed for whistleblowers. I really, really like this episode and I hope you do too. And now over to Matthew and Jim. Greetings and welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. This is Matthew Stevenson. And today I'm delighted to be joined by James Wasserstrom. And I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to talk with Jim today about his experience and expertise in this area. So Jim, thank you very much for making the time. Thank you, Matthew. I appreciate it. Happy to be here. Let me first uh, start out by asking you to tell me and our listeners a little bit about your own background and how you came to be interested in corruption. I gather that you started working in the UN system focused on issues related to corporate governance and procurement, but weren't specifically focused on corruption, anti-corruption issues, but that developed during your time, particularly, I believe it was when you were stationed in Kosovo. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. I uh, actually entered the UN system right out of graduate school in my mid-20s and worked at UNDP, UN Development Program, and then UN Capital Development Fund, both of which are economic development agencies and some political development. And then I got I got pretty bored with that and decided to leave and went on a special leave without pay for a couple of years to work on Wall Street at American Express. Didn't like that very much. September 11th happened while I was working down there uh, and uh, everything kind of came to a halt. And uh, the UN called me up and said, uh, what are you doing down there? And I said, nothing at the moment. Everything's sort of, sort of on hold. So well, why don't you come back uh, to work here? And I said, sure, but not in economic development. So they said, how about peacekeeping operations, which I'd always wanted to do. So they said, great. And they first sent me to Afghanistan. This is in 2002, soon after the U.S. had invaded. That was sort of a taste of peacekeeping operations for a month or so. And then they shifted me over to, to Pristina, to Kosovo, UN mission in Kosovo. So I got there in 2002. But I was sent out to do work in logistics. I was the chief logistician, essentially, which I have no background in, but, uh, but it was a very large operation, 17,000 people in the mission as a whole, and my operation was in charge of transport and premises and a variety of other things, a lot of people working under me. And, but I, because I worked in the private sector and had some background in, in audits and investigations, the SRSG at the time, the Special Representative of the Secretary General uh, named Michael Steiner, uh, said, called me into his office, and he said, you know, we have these thousands of pages of external audit reports on the uh, publicly owned enterprises of Kosovo. And everyone here, the, the guy who's in charge of that, is too afraid to look at them. So given your, your background and maybe you could take a look and see what's in these reports. 
2,000 pages is a lot for one person to do. So I assembled a group of people and we went through them. And it was horrifying what we found. It was, it was, these were real vipers' nests of corruption. And that was my first exposure, really, to, uh, to the, the topic of corruption. And with the team, I came up with a roadmap of 38 uh, steps to be taken in three different categories, uh, corporate governance being one of them, uh, regulatory change, and uh, law enforcement, uh, the others. And I gave them back to, to Michael, and I said, here, they uh, scheduled a, a secret meeting in Vienna with the UN's Inspector General, the U EU's Inspector General, since the EU was, was really the, the part of the UN operation that was that where the corruption was heavily nested, and then with other people from UNMIC. So I gave a presentation about my little roadmap, 38 steps and so on, to these to the heads of these, these ins uh, inspectorates general and my boss, and uh, they all thought these were good ideas. And so after that, my boss said, uh, so please, this is very good. So I'd like you to start operation that will implement these changes and clean out public utilities, sort of as a de facto commissioner of public utilities. So I said, well, I, I already have a day job. It's quite complicated. It's, and he said, yes, you do. That's right. And you're going to keep that. And you're going to do this in parallel. You're going to have two completely separate operations. They'll be staffed completely separately. And so you really don't have any way to say no. So I said, after a short pause, I said, you're right, I guess I'm locked in. And so from that point on, I ran these two parallel operations, one focusing on cleaning out public utilities, which were more than a billion dollars of uh, gross domestic product, which is quite a lot, more than half the GDP of the province at that time, now country, came from, from the POEs. And so I, I proceeded to, to try to transform them into less corrupt, if not, I, don't, I can't say they were ever and they are not completely uncorrupt, but at least I, I tried to, to clean them out, uh, get, introduce OECD standards of corporate governance, instance to proper corporate boards, etc. And uh, eventually we privatized one. One was, was actually, two were privatized. The others were at least cleaned up somewhat. So that's how I got my start in the anti-corruption world. Terrific. So this was this was your work focused on dealing with corruption at principally state-owned enterprises in Kosovo. I Correct. gather during your time with the UN mission in Kosovo, UNMIC, I guess is what people in the in the business call it. Um, yes. You also uncovered corruption in the mission itself, and this led to a dr fairly dramatic series of events that some of our listeners may be familiar with, but but many may not be. So can you? Provide a bit of the, the backstory. How exactly did uh, your attention turn to corruption in the, the UN operation Kosovo itself? And what form did that corruption take? I, I, because I was doing this for quite a few years, and I think the, the point of any kind of corruption operation is that it takes some years for people to have faith in, in your bona fides as, a, as an anti-corruption person. And because I've been doing this for some time uh, and I was getting some unwanted publicity, because I tried to keep our operation very much off the radar for, for what I think are obvious reasons, uh, but it got some, some attention. Uh, we started getting lots and lots of tips. And my, my deputy uh, and close friend uh, is a Kosovar Albanian. So they would come to him or, and he would bring them to me or I would hear them separately. And at one point involving the, uh, the electricity utility, there was this very persistent and loud set of allegations that kept on coming from, from disparate sources uh, that were not connected to one another, which is already a little bit alarming. You begin to 
when you start hearing, very often people would, would feed me garbage because they wanted to in, in vendetta against one of their enemies. And that was easy, especially with my Kosovar colleague. He, he, he could smell that stuff immediately. And so that was easy to figure out. But this one was persistent and it was from disparate sources. We didn't know each other. And what, did it, what it entailed was in connection with the contract a giant contract that we were we were talking about negotiating uh, with the electricity utility to produce a new power plant and coal mine because Kosovo has uh, enormous amounts of lignite, soft coal, dirty coal, uh, which which it could extract in order to fuel power plant and power itself and and sell the energy. So it was quite a lucrative deal. So the plan was to build this coal mine and power plant. And the deal value was at the time worth about five billion with a B uh, U.S. dollars. So the bid went out, the request for proposals went out, and we began to hear that one of the bidders buried inside inside the documents had a ten percent facilitation fee. And as you know, facilitation fees immediately set off alarm bells to anyone in the procurement business because those are basically almost always some form of covered bribe or kickback. And, and we heard that the 10%, in other words, $500 million, was going to go to a former staff and close party affiliates of the Minister of Energy and Mines, who was going to be chairing the committee to, uh, that would make the decisions to which would get it. And the co-chair was my boss, the deputy uh, SRSG, an American retired U.S. Army general, who was going to, who I heard from these rumors, was going to get a piece of that action. So that was how this came to my attention. And since my boss controlled the law enforcement side of the business, I couldn't report it anywhere in Kosovo. So I reported to the, to the inspector general of the UN, who happened to be a, a good friend and former colleague from Kosovo, uh, who knew these people individual and knew these individuals well. And she knew that they were capable of this or she suspected they were. So she sent in a dozen investigators under different guises secretly to see what, whether there was anything in this. And as that investigation was unfolding, the fact of those investigators was leaked to the senior levels of the UN, uh, who immediately passed it on to, to the senior levels of UNMIC. And they identified me almost immediately uh, as the source for that. And so I became a whistleblower uh, in the course of all of this. I, I, I guess I didn't think of myself as such at the time, but it was obvious that that's what I had done. And then they started to retaliate against me in more and more vicious ways. Those ways included eliminating my position, eliminating my whole operation, then uh, putting the word out that, that uh, I, I had signed a contract for an exorbitant sum of money from the very utilities that I was overseeing. Uh, so there was a huge conflict of interest that they blasted out into the media I, when I was leaving to go home for the weekend, uh, which because I live in Greece, and uh, so I would commute. Uh, they arrested me at the border illegally. They put me un under armed escort and brought me back to the capital city where they then did an illegal search of my house, my apartment, my house, my car, and my person, uh, where they confiscated anything they couldn't read, uh, so anything that was electronic. Uh, and uh, they generated this enormous negative publicity in the Kosovo media and in 16 or 17 other countries that I was a corrupt UN official caught while attempting to flee. I, they've sub subjected me to several investigations, criminal, administrative, and I, meanwhile, I filed a claim against them at, for retaliation as a whistleblower. Then there was the, the regular investigation of the allegation that I made, which was still 
going on, but in secret. So at one point I was, my head was kind of spinning because I was involved in one way or another, either as the subject of or as the, as the complainant in uh, four investigations that were ongoing simultaneously. Just to clarify, so you said at certain points they did a variety of things. Is, who's the they? Is the they UNMIC? Is it the Kosovar authorities? Is it a combination of both of them? Who were the people who were? It was entirely UNMIC, and the, it was entirely UNMIC, to be clear. It was driven by the SRSG at the time, Joachim Rooker, uh, and the principal deputy, uh, the American Stephen Shook. And then there was a group of people at headquarters, uh, including the then Secretary General, uh, Ban Ki-moon, who was, I made well aware of everything that was happening in real time, who uh, did nothing to, uh, to investigate any of the truth of the matter. And so there, was, so there was basically a conspiracy of individuals who retaliated against me, it, even to the point where my Kosovar friend, uh, got wind, and, and I felt that my life was uh, was threatened. That I would could have I could easily have been. There's a hit out on me, in other words. So it's in, at one point when I realized that my life was in danger. This was very early one morning, like four or five in the morning, and I brought what was left of my my possessions up to the uh, the landing of the, the apartment where my friend and his family lived, uh, and I. It was too early to wake them, uh, so I just walked around for an hour, and I came back to the landing of the apartment only to discover that my bag was not there. And I thought, "Oh, great! Insult to injury. There's a hit out on me, and now my now my now my luggage, my last bag is stolen." And uh, so I knocked on the door, and my friend, his name is Roosevelt, and his brothers came out, and uh, they knew me. And uh, so Roosevelt said, "See, see, I told you it wasn't a bomb. Uh, it was just Jim's luggage." So. He and his brothers put me in the back of a car and uh, drove me down to the border and, and helped me get across. I won't say how. And, uh, and I got to the other side to what is now North Macedonia. And then I went home to Greece where my wife and children were waiting. So one of the things that's so baffling to me and shocking to me about this story, and I want to have an opportunity in a moment to talk about the, the continuing aftermath of this in your attempts to work within the UN system to address this issue, is the um, apparent lack of response by the UN outside of Kosovo, you referred to the Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, when you, when you began the narrative, you mentioned that at least initially you found a sim sympathetic ear in the UN's Inspector General. And I can understand why the people in UNMIC, the corrupt actors in UNMIC, and perhaps their subordinates, the people who depended on them, would view you as a threat and would take these actions against you. I mean, it's not good, it's not moral, but it's understandable. What I'm having a little bit more trouble understanding, and I would love it if you could, maybe it would just be speculation, but provide some speculation. Why do you think that the UN leadership, which in other contexts talks a lot about the importance of transparency and protecting whistleblowers and fighting corruption, and which presumably cares about its own reputation and like they don't, as far as we know, have a financial stake in the corrupt activities that some UNMIC officials were involved in. Why do you think that they seemed um, not only fairly passive on this, but but not to really do much at all to to try to protect you? Do you have any guesses as to why that is? Yeah, 
Uh, I've had quite a lot of time to look into that and to think about it. And I've, I mean, the one thing when I became a whistleblower is that I was completely ostracized publicly. I was, I became uh, radioactive. And so no UN person, even people I'd known for 20 something years, because at that point I'd been in the UN for nearly 30 years, would have any, anything to do with me except uh, one or two very, very close friends. And, but the, the, the rank and file and others would constantly, and I'm, I mean, they were, they were doing it very often, sending me sub rosa or, or by email or other surreptitious means, uh, what was actually being said and being done at the highest levels, including on the notorious 38th floor, uh, which is where the Secretary General's office is. So I had a real window into what was going on in real time. I mean, I, and it helped my, with my eventual suit against the, against Ban Ki-moon and the organization for its failure to, to adhere to its own whistleblowing protection uh, mechanisms. So uh, to your point, the Inspector General uh, was the one who actually told me to claim whistleblower status uh, and that she would back me up, which she did. So I, I was the, f the first official whistleblower in UN history because the regulation had actually, had actually just been put into force uh, a few months before this all took place. It was as a result of the Volcker Commission's uh, response to oil for food and the massive wrongdoing that took place inside the UN at that time. And so the, the, the whistleblowing statute and protection was new to the UN. And the UN resisted it. The UN didn't absolutely did not ever want to have any kind of whistleblowing uh, provision. The US government, the State Department, had actually pushed it and in fact had been quite forceful in introducing it. And they told me that the UN did not want it because they did not want to, to quote, encourage a culture of snitches, unquote. So whistleblowers were snitches. And, uh, and in an organization full of thieves, actually, because I can go on and on and on about other cases of corruption in the UN over the years and currently, that uh, they, they obviously didn't want to have people in, in the middle of this who were, who were going to so-called snitch on them. So what they did was they, as they often do with any of these kinds of transparency and accountability measures, the, the words are perfect. They, they read great on paper. They satisfy the, the donors or others who are interested in the, in the subject matter, but then they operate in completely bad faith, which is, which is exactly what they did for me. So every one, I put every one of the mechanisms that they had set up to so-called protect whistleblowers, I had to put to the test. Because every step of the way, I, each one of those mechanisms failed in the sort of the assembly line of UN justice. Uh, they, we had a failure at level one, so then we went on to level two. We had a failure at level two. Failure at level one was the ethics office, which was established to vet claims of retaliation by prospective whistleblowers. So threading that needle is almost impossible. They reject, even to this day, they reject 98 or 99% of the whistleblowers' claims to them, which is outrageous. I don't think of any organization in the world which rejects that number. And they, they use the same excuse that they used after me, which was, oh, these, these people, they, they, they have problems at work and they, and they, they think that's, that's somehow whistleblowing and it's somehow retaliation. And, you know, it's a little more complicated than that, but it boils down to these stupid staff members. They just don't understand it. Uh, which I find very hard to believe after 14 years that, that they haven't been able to educate staff members as to what constitutes whistleblowing and what doesn't. But it doesn't, they, they don't, they don't want to do that because they want the system to be dysfunctional. They really have no interest in protection. 
But I managed to thread that needle. I was, I was declared, uh, had a prima facie case of, of uh, retaliation. Uh, that went then on to the inspector general's office. Uh, but at the time, the, the inspector general was then wrapped up in other controversy. And uh, she was a very political person. And so she turned over the whole matter over to her director of investigations. Now, the, the investigator who was looking into my allegations of corruption uh, actually did find all the way along that everything I claimed was true. However, uh, and I know him, uh, I knew he, he worked with me very closely. Um, now, he, he turned it over to his boss, the director of investigations, who was notorious and eventually was hauled up in front of the tribunal and found guilty of, of harassing his own staff members uh, who, who gave him rock solid case of corruption, which he rejected. Uh, and in my case, he felt uh, that his primary job uh, was to protect the reputation of the organization and the secretary general in particular. And that's what the incentive structure in the UN is, is that protect the reputation of the organization at all costs. So he sabotaged the findings. And so rather than coming up with the conspiracy, which is where the, the investigator was headed, the investor came back to me and he gave me his report, which, which said that, yes, all the things I had said happened to me, the arrest, the illegal search and seizure, et cetera, et cetera. Everything had happened, but it was random acts by rogue actors. Wow. I mean, how you, how you get to random... I, mean, I see it's, it's extremely common in conspiracy cases and whistleblowing cases where they don't want to find the, the, the obvious truth. So that was what they found in my case. And so then that failed. And so then I had to take it to the UN into the UN justice system, which had, was in the process of being completely revamped to be supposedly professionalized and impartial. So uh, I hired an, a private attorney and we then filed a claim against the secretary general for failing to enforce the statute that under which uh, whistleblowing and whistleblower protection uh, came. So that, that went on for seven years. And to everyone's surprise, uh, my own especially, we won. We, I mean, at the lower levels, we kept on winning every, the UN threw every possible rationale to justify random acts by rogue actors, to justify the, uh, that this case shouldn't have any standing, that it went you know, on and on and on. Uh, but they kept on losing at every turn. And eventually, uh, we won at the, the lower level in a quite spectacular and landmark ruling that yes, everything I had claimed uh, had taken place. Uh, and that, uh, that they owed me compensation. It was a s small amount of money, but it, but it was a, a victory of sorts. Uh, and the UN then, uh, appealed that to the, to the higher court, which is the court of final resort. So I went to that court, which was in, uh, in Vienna and they, the UN prosecutor said, there, there was a technical reason. There was a procedural reason. I didn't follow the proper procedure in filing the case. And so of the three judges, two of them agreed. One of them did not, despite the fact that we pointed out that the procedure that they referred to was not introduced until almost a year after my case had been filed. And in fact, we had adhered to the procedure in force at the time and even that particular procedure. But uh, that wasn't good enough. And the case was eventually um, lost on that very small technical ground. 
And I look at that as, as I mean, the, you could tell the judges when I was in, in the room, they were not interested at all in hearing what we had to say. I mean, uh, they were, you know, sort of looking at their nails and, and they were, they were just not interested in hearing our arguments. One of them wrote, uh, however, one of them wrote a really dynamic, um, dissent from the, the overall opinion, which laid out all the arguments that I've just laid out to you. So clearly somebody was paying attention. But their minds were made up before they got in the room, and uh, that was clear. So uh, in the end, I did end up getting a, um, legal fees, uh, which was something. But uh, I think the point was that this, this then did exactly the kind of damage that the UN did not want. It received, because I was winning in, a, in, a, in, a, in a such an unlikely way, it started to get, for, for the first couple of years, I was the villain of the piece, and the UN made sure that I, that was how the press covered it. I was a corrupt UN official call attempting to flee. I was greedy. Uh, I was clearly the, the bad guy in the scenario. And, but, and the media covered it that way. But when I started to win, uh, the media took quite a lot of interest and it got covered all over the world because it is the UN. And it got really quite massive coverage, both television and print, and blogs and, and, uh, Suddenly, I went from being the villain of the piece to um, some some kind of David versus Goliath, and that was exactly how the media covered it. And it really snowballed, and the UN ended up looking extremely badly in the whole thing. And knowing the UN really only cares about money and reputation, uh, I figured I was probably doing something of a number on the reputation. So the, the only other thing to do was to go after the money. So uh, I went to Congress. Uh, by then, I had been fired by the UN, and I was uh, with the taint over me. It was very difficult to find employment, uh, and I had been psychologically and financially uh, damaged. It was a very, very difficult period for me and my family for some years, uh, and I won't. I don't want to understate that it was. It was a horrific period. But at this, at that time, Obama, President Obama, had been elected, and he started to surge in Afghanistan. Surge development and other kinds of professionals to uh, to start working on a hearts and minds strategy uh, in, against the Taliban. So in a really poor state, but anxious to, to move on, I applied for one of those positions and uh, was lucky enough to get a position, a job working as a, as a development advisor in the front line at Jalalabad airfield on the border with Pakistan. Uh, overseeing development work in three or four Afghan uh, provinces right right in the front, right along the war zone, on a, mil on a U.S. military base. I'd never worked for the military. I'd never been to Afghanistan. Uh, I'd never been in a war like that before. So, But I went, and it was a, a very positive experience uh, to be able to try to, to advance that particular, that particular agenda uh, and working with the Afghans uh, very closely. But while I was going through this, I, uh, the, I came to the notice of some foreign service officers at the embassy in Kabul for my anti-corruption background. And of course, Afghanistan corruption there it makes Kosovo looks like, look like kindergarten. So, so they, uh, the, one of the ambassadors uh, was interested. And, uh, and so they pulled me out. After a few months, they pulled me out of, of Jalalabad and brought me up to be the senior advisor anti-corruption in Kabul at the embassy, uh, which I did for for almost five years, um, one of the longest serving uh, civilians or anyone military in the whole Afghan conflict. 
And uh, I developed and led the anti-corruption effort there for, for five critical years from 2010 until early 2010 till late 2014. I want to ask you. I want to ask you about your experience in Afghanistan. But before we leave the UN topic, you'd you'd mentioned that your case, in some ways, this this blew up in the UN's face or backfired. If the reason that the central UN leadership was trying to villainize you in the first place or was not taking action against the the unmic folks who were who were targeting you was to protect their reputation, uh, it seems like in the end this actually damage their reputation much more seriously than would have been the case if they'd at least sort of stayed neutral or provided some support. You also mentioned that in addition to reputation, they care about money. And I think you'd started to talk about maybe a little bit of the, the work you did with people in the United States Congress to put increasing pressure on the UN to fix their whistleblower system. And I, I want you to talk a little bit about that legislation in, in particular, because not all of our listeners will be familiar with it. But But beyond that, more generally, I'm really curious whether you think that the combination of these factors, the, the uh, financial pressure that the legislation you're about to describe uh, put on the United Nations, and also the reputational costs of the UN starting to look like the bad guy in all this, led to substantial and meaningful reforms. Because you said earlier that they had this first wave of reforms where they did what you often see in many organizations, both public and private. They have something that looks great on paper, but in practice is not implemented in good faith. In the last, let's say, five to seven years, do you see evidence now that the United Nations has made substantial progress in improving the way it addresses concerns about uh, anti-whistleblower retaliation and internal corruption more generally? Or do you think it's still a lot of PR without a lot of genuine progress? Well... The, the short answer to your question, your last question, is there has been no progress. Uh, but let me get, I'll get to that uh, after I an answer the question about working with Congress and what happened with all of this. So as I was working in Kabul, there were often congressional delegations that came over uh, and lots of delegations from Congress, the Senate, uh, you know, very senior officials from the U.S. government, other, other places. So I was often brought, brought into brief on anti-corruption. Uh, but in this case, it was a, a congressional staff delegation that came over from the appropriators and the appropriations committees. And usually the embassy tried to keep me away from people like that. But uh, but it was the summer. I was the only one around because it was the usual annual rotation, which didn't apply to me because I was staying. But all the foreign service, most of the foreign service, the vast majority would leave after a year. So a new crew would come in. So during that changeover period, so this delegation arrived. And so I was told to squire them around Kabul. So we went to a variety of places and we got a chance to talk. And, and we talked about uh, Afghan issues and so on. And, and I told them a little about the Kosovo uh, issues. And at the end of it, I asked them, there's one, I don't want to name this individual, but uh, there was one individual that I had worked with for many years in Congress when I was raising funds, ironically, for, for the various UN funds and programs with which I was associated. And I asked if that individual was still working in, in Congress. And they were very surprised because it's someone who keeps a very low profile. Uh, and uh, they said, oh, yes, absolutely. And so I said, well, give him my best regards. So some uh, months later, I was in Washington. Uh, and I went to see those people just to update them as they had requested. And uh, this individual joined the meeting. And uh, we talked about the UN problems. 
and he was very unhappy to hear about them, asked me for any ideas as to how uh, we might we might uh, mitigate the UN's horrific attitude towards uh, whistleblowers in general. And I suggested, yeah, how about cutting the contribution if, if they don't protect whistleblowers? I mean, actually protect, not the words, but the deeds. And he said, okay. And so some months later, emerged in 2014 in the federal, in the federal FY 2014 or 2015 appropriations bill, a paragraph which says, uh, in essence, that if the UN doesn't do its utmost to protect whistleblowers from retaliation, actually protect them, not just the words. And there are a number of other elements to that, including allowing them to go to bind, binding arbitration with the UN, not relying on the UN justice system, uh, they, um, then the U.S. contribution would be reduced by 15%, and this would be managed by the State Department. So I was very happy that that legislation was there and passed. And by the way, it's passed every subsequent year, including the current one, and uh, it's likely to continue. And even though the State Department, I think, has been, has been uh, extremely cowardly in, in its use of that instrument, uh, it has on occasion used it. It has been effective. It has forced uh, at least some of the organizations that have been subjected to it, most recently the International Civil, Civil Aviation Organization in Montreal, for torturing high-level whistleblower there, as well as the World Intellectual Property Organization, the Organization for American States. So it has been used, and it's been threatened. And like nuclear deterrence, the threat of the, of the weapon seems to have uh, some effect on protecting an individual whistleblower who is in a particularly dire situation, as was the case with someone named Andres Compass some years ago when he uh, revealed a sexual exploitation and abuse by French peacekeepers in the Central African Republic, uh, and the UN went after him mercilessly, but he, he came out of it well, uh, although he ended up resigning, but that's a different story. So, yes, that weapon exists. It, it, in my view, it should be used far more aggressively because it would change things in the UN. Although I understand uh, that when it was threatened in one case, the UN kind of shrugged its shoulders and tried to figure out two things. One, in what ways uh, it could live without the US 15%. So it was already kind of making budgetary adjustments. And two, which programs were most important to the US which would be targeted first for cuts as a result of the 15% reduction in U.S. contribution. So they were going to try to make it punitive uh, to the U.S. to do so. So that was their attitude, not to fix the problem, not to even look at whether there, there, there was any truth, because they, they know there's truth. They just hate this program. Uh, so I, I'm in touch with UN whistleblowers, a whole array of them, uh, and all of them have exactly the same complaints that I have just relayed to you uh, about the fact that you getting the ethics office to actually, the first step is to get the ethics office to validate a whistleblower complaint. Never happens, or almost never. Then if you manage to get that, OIOS never finds that there's retaliation. Uh, if, you're, if you're lucky enough to find your way into court, you never, you almost never win the case for exactly the same kinds of reasons. So it's a, it's a pattern. It's, it's, there's, no, there's nothing random about it. The, there, there's no there's no randomness or randomness of their actions. They're all rogues when it comes to to transparency and accountability in the UN system, from the Secretary General on down, and it goes on and on and on. So, as in as much as as the reputation gets tarnished every time one a whistleblower comes forward and gets 
gets publicized because now they've they've taken on what a lot of corporate America does, which is that they had when the whistleblowers come forward, they will buy them off. They will say, "We'll give you a hunk of money, and you sign an NDA, and it goes away." So that's that's one of their newer strategies, uh, rather than uh, risk um, correcting the problem. Whistleblower identifies punishing the bad guys, which that which never happened in my case, even though they were clearly identified. Even in the report that they did on the corruption that I alleged, they actually found that there was there was uh, a web, uh, a, you know, link analysis involving all kinds of links between UN and wrongdoers in, in the municipal side. Report was never was buried. It, it it was it's never emerged, even though technically all reports of audits and investigation are supposed to be made public. But the UN has seen fit to not adhere to it to to one of the core statutes of transparency and accountability uh, that applies to it, but it, which it has carved out its own weird exception to, and which is never challenged. So I, I guess that's a long way of, of answering your question that there's been, not only is there absolutely no change, things are worse than ever. Well, that's certainly depressing and dispiriting. It makes me want to ask, and, and I can understand if you, you don't want to answer this question, but it makes me want to ask, if you could go back um, at the moment that you've been reviewing those documents and discovered evidence of wrongdoing on the part of these unmic people, would you have done it all over again, foreseeing what would what would happen? Would you not have? Would you have done anything differently? I mean, I know it's kind of an impossible question to answer in some ways, but I'm asking in part because there has been some research on whistleblowers and what they think after the fact about whether, in the end, they thought it was all worth it. I mean, what what do you, do you think it was? it was worth it in the end, notwithstanding everything that happened? Or do you kind of feel like you know, now you're so disillusioned, if you could go back to your younger self, you would just say, just quit, get out, don't, don't bother? I actually am very proud of what I did, to be honest. I would, I would have done the same thing again. I, it never entered my, frankly, it never entered my mind to just resign. I always felt that this was a fight worth fighting because I believed in the, in the ideals of, of a United Nations of the charter of the UN, I, and I still do. Uh, the current organization doesn't, doesn't resemble uh, the, the charter in any way, and as far as I'm concerned, it should be blown up and rebuilt the next day, brick by brick, in an organization that actually, uh, actually adheres to the principles in the charter of the UN, because this one, I don't know what you call this one. Uh, that being said, I have absolutely no, no doubt I would have done the same thing, and although it was very difficult for, for a number of years, and I, I, I'm, I think my family would, would, would may, at least one of them I know would say, I wish you hadn't done it. But the others uh, were, were proud of it. So, you know, it, it really depends on the individual. And when I, I have been asked that question before, and I point out that whistleblowers don't grow up wanting to be whistleblowers. Uh, it's not like, oh, gee, gee, dad, I want to become a whistleblower. Or not. No, you fall into it. It's because it's just the right thing to do, and you can't live with yourself. And that was how I saw this. I could never have looked myself in the mirror if I had run away from this. Uh, it was just too egregious. I would have felt awful about myself and anything I did subsequently. So it was important to me to do the right thing as a person uh, who has some principles. I think what I try to encourage now when I'm contacted by prospective whistleblowers, I tell them all the things all the really terrible things that are likely to happen to them because they happen, they happen to almost all the whistleblowers uh, who, who I know. Um, but I also like to point out that there, that there is life after their current 
job or current profession or current career. Most of the whistleblowers I know, perhaps with some help from, because it does generate a great deal of admiration and respect. When I was hired by the US government, the diplomatic security people who are not known to be the chattiest people on the planet, uh, they looked into every aspect of this episode and me personally. And they, one of them took the, took the time to call me up in Afghanistan to tell me that they had granted my top secret security clearance and that they were really happy to welcome someone with integrity into the US government and the government needed more people with integrity. That's very encouraging. Um, it, it also leads into another question I want to ask you, and it connects to the fact that you, as we've been discussing for most of this conversation, have personal experience with what it's like to be a whistleblower on corruption and organization, everything that entails. You've also, at various stages in your professional life, worked as an anti-corruption professional on designing systems to fight corruption, to fight money laundering, and part of that, presumably, is to encourage and protect whistleblowers. And I'm curious whether your own personal experience, having been the person in the system who's, who's trying to expose wrongdoing, has influenced your thinking about what we can do at the level of policy to encourage and protect whistleblowers adequately. And I, I don't mean, although I'm glad we discussed it, things we could do to put pressure on the UN financially or otherwise to get them to clean up your system. I, I guess I'm asking whether you as someone with firsthand experience of what it feels like to be in that situation, have been able to draw on that experience when thinking about what kinds of things organizations can do, but also more generally activists, advocates, others can do to encourage more people to make the kind of calculation that you didn't come forward, as opposed to making the, frankly, in many cases, quite rational calculation, even if we wouldn't want to encourage it, that at the end of the day, it's just not worth it. Well, I have two or three things to say on that subject. First, uh, if we look at the current situation of our own country and our own government, most of the transparency and accountability that we are experiencing uh, is coming from people who just can't stand what they see taking place inside of the administration. So the administration has, has sprung so many leaks, it's, it's just coming from everywhere. And uh, when we look at what happened with the, the president's pressure on, on the president of Ukraine, which emerged as a result of the whistleblower. And so many of the, of the stories that we're getting of the, of the truth are coming from whistleblowers, people not only who've served in the administration and were disgusted, but those who were, who were career professionals who couldn't stand it and decided to blow the whistle. So the point I'm trying to make is that whistleblowers serve an essential purpose for the rest of society, which society almost never acknowledges in the moment. And society is very often carried in many ways by whistleblowers, whether it was Daniel Ellsberg with the Pentagon Papers or is this, you know, formerly anonymous whistleblower for Ukraine. I mean, enormous events take place as a result of whistleblowing, which can change the course of history. And these are very often catalytic events where the whistleblower, him or herself, is pilloried and publicly humiliated and subjected to enormous abuse in the moment. But then history uh, very often renders a much kinder judgment, quite positive judgment on whistleblowers, almost without exception. So if one takes the longer view of one's contribution to the greater good, uh, yes, there is uh, considerable disruption uh, in one's life, I mean, profound, but it, you can get past it, as many have. 
uh, and lead good lives, in some cases, maybe even better lives than, than uh, they were leading before. The careerism that seems to be a feature of many individuals that, oh my God, how can I, how can I sacrifice this particular job? Well, the US and in, in, in some other countries, we're fortunate enough that we actually have options. My heart really goes out to those in countries where I work most of the time in war zones, conflict zones, very difficult situations where I work, uh, to your point, I've worked on preventative measures, I've worked on law enforcement, curative measures, law enforcement, justice systems, streamlining procedures and processes so that they are no longer as conducive to corruption, eliminating discretionary authority so that power is concentrated in the hands of the few or one person. There are whole varieties of, of ways to affect change. And some of the institutional changes that I introduced in Afghanistan are still functioning. And same, similarly in Ukraine, where I've also tried to introduce longer-term institutional change. So I, I feel all is not lost. And it, there are ways whistleblowers can affect change. And in fact, to your point, uh, I'm working now on promoting an idea, uh, which is called, which I'm calling the Integrity Sanctuary, which would establish perhaps in the United States, um, I'm hoping that, that it gets uh, funded in the United States, where whistleblowers who found themselves in if coming from countries where there are very few protections, where they've been really, they're in very dire circumstances uh, for fighting corruption, and their lives or those of their families or their, their livelihoods are, are in great peril, great danger, that the international community or recognizes what these people are trying to achieve and is able to extract them and their families to a safe haven, preferably in the United States, where they are for, where for six months to a year, they are allowed to recover uh, emotionally, psychologically, given support in that way. They're given, so it's sort of recovery phase, a regeneration phase where where they download their experiences to to individuals who and they speak about what's going on in their particular country they gain new skills whether it's in civic mobilization or technical skills in extractive industries if, if they're trying to fight corruption in mining or environmental corruption whatever they have access to expertise they get training in how to how to speak publicly how to be more persuasive uh, maybe some funding for a, an anti-corruption organization of some kind, and then re-entry back into the fray after a year or so. So it's, I call it sort of the three R's of recovery, regeneration, or reinvigoration, and then re-entry. And I'm, I would love to see such an, such an institution take place in, in the U.S. because uh, we may have lost our lead in anti-corruption given how much corruption, which is obvious to the outside world in, in the United States, take, retaking uh, that lead by by establishing this integrity sanctuary in the U.S. There's also interest in having a branch in Europe at some point, but I'd like to get it started in the U.S. first. So we can, and with the international recognition and stature, there also comes a certain level of invisible immunity. In my case, the same thing. Once I, I started getting positive publicity and became this David figure, then I could get attention. I could get media attention, I could get attention of decision makers in other countries and in the, in the country uh, where I was working. I had a platform and that platform protected me. Now, it doesn't always work. I mean, look at, uh, at Navalny, and, you know, there, there are sometimes extremely dire circumstances and consequences. But on the other hand, it can work. And that's what I'm, I'm banking on. Work for me, it's work for others I know, and I want to try it.
sounds fascinating. I know we're reaching the end of our time, and I don't want to uh, keep you for for uh, too much longer. But this integrity sanctuary idea seems seems really fascinating, and I know this is something that you're currently putting a lot of your energy into. Just to clarify, is the idea that this would be the sort of thing that would be uh, supported by governments or by private donors, by universities? What's your vision for exactly how you would provide the support to, for six to 12 months? Uh, and also, uh, who you envision would be making the decisions? Because I'm, unfortunately, there are so many people who have put them, themselves and their livelihoods and sometimes their lives at risk. How do you envision the 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 organization of this project working, or are we still kind of at the concept stage and we haven't yet gotten to the stage where we work out details of those sorts? Well, I'd say we're at the concept stage. We're maybe getting a little past the concept stage because I, I have ideas on all those areas that you've mentioned, but I haven't really discussed them with too many other people. I've discussed them with a number of other anti-corruption professionals and whistleblowers who I would, I would like to see as the selection committee. It, it should be senior, independent, international, and, and U.S. anti-corruption experts or professionals and whistleblowers who understand what these people are going through and can, and they're also able, I think, in some ways to be able to sort out the, the wheat from the chaff or the real from the phony because I'm often approached by people who say they're whistleblowers and they turned out, out to be people who were part of a criminal fraud, didn't get what they wanted, and then blew the whistle off it. So I don't consider that to be uh, the kind of whistleblower I would be, I think of as having integrity. But what I'm trying to, the funding I'm trying to find, which which could come from the U.S. government or other multi-donor initiative or the U.S. initially, uh, or uh, at sort of seed money or to get it, start piloting it for a while, then getting private donors or private organizations to fund it is obviously, it has to be unconditional funding and completely independent in terms of management that is absolutely essential to the integrity part of the integrity sanctuary it can't be seen as a way of promoting any other agenda than that of integrity of the fight against corruption and the fight to protect whistleblowers Terrific. i did want to ask you about just one other thing that you mentioned that i'm curious about and i'm actually also curious whether it would be part of the integrity integrity sanctuary program as you envision it um and that's the community of whistleblowers right i mean there are what one hopes not too many in any one place at any one time, but but I would I would imagine that you're now a member of a of an unusual club, and you've experienced things that most people, thankfully, haven't experienced. And let me again, I'll ask this question both personally and then more broadly: Have you experienced? Has it been important to your own experience to be able to talk to people who have gone through similar things, either when you were going through for the first, you know, when you were going through your own experience early on? or now that you've been through it before? And then with respect to um, the larger questions, would you imagine something like your Integrity Sanctuary program could be a way to create more of an international community of whistleblowers or people who have been, who have been through this to give them more opportunities to engage with one another and share their stories and in some ways just support each other. Um, it seems like the kind of thing that, that this uh, sort of project naturally invites, and I'm wondering whether that's part of your thinking. That's definitely part of the thinking. I mean, the, the whole idea, the whole concept came from what, I, what happened to me and what, what didn't exist for me. I needed all of the things that I am proposing the Integrity Sanctuary do, and more. I didn't even know 
what I needed at that point. So towards the end of this of the whistleblowing episode of, of my life, uh, I wanted to put some thoughts down on paper as to what would have helped me and beyond me, because I had resources and I, I'm grateful that I was able to to add my own you know resources. Uh, I did not have any help from, uh, I didn't know any other whistleblowers because I didn't really think of myself uh, as a whistleblower until I was sort of half, halfway through it. So, and I, I didn't know any whistleblowers, they didn't know how to reach any, I didn't, I mean, I, it, was, it was a completely blank slate as far as I was concerned. And what I have done, including very recently, uh, I met with someone who is, has blown the whistle on very serious kind of malfeasance involving one of the UN agencies. And I, I, my network is not UN exclusively. There are people who've come to me from all countries and agencies and parts of the world. And one of the key features of whistleblowers when they have started to feel the retaliation is trauma. They're profoundly traumatized because they see all the, all the foundations of their life being eliminated out from under them. They see the professional uh, life being, uh, their livelihood being severely threatened. They see their, their character assassinated. Uh, they see the implications for their loved ones. So it's, it's a, a, a profoundly uh, disturbing and upsetting experience without any kind of support system, which is why I think Integrity Sanctuary is so important. And the, the network that will build and the, the, the community of sympathizers internationally uh, that this will this will encourage and to and to change the narrative around uh, support for whistleblowers. Uh, th those are all key objectives behind this. But this whistleblower, uh, when I when he came to me and and I could tell because having been there myself, repeating the same the same feelings over and over and over again, using exactly the same words over and over and over again, those are symptoms of post traumatic stress. I know having been through it twice in another case, case, occasion as well. Uh, and I recognized that. And so I, am, I was happy, even though I had heard him say the same things to me verbatim on the telephone on three or four other occasions. And when we were face to face, he said, told me exactly the same things because I know that that's part of the healing process. And I could talk him through, as I did on every one of those occasions, how it could be okay, what would be the next steps, what he should expect, because it's easy to predict the behavior. It doesn't seem to vary very much. The people who are doing this to whistleblowers are not particularly imaginative because they hold all the power. They don't need to be imaginative. So to get him to talk it through, and although uh, the intensity is, is, is live for this particular person at the moment, so that, that probably was, was only a temporary bomb on the wound, it's the kind of thing that will ultimately, once that, once that particular chapter is written, this is how these people can recover. And then to help them, as I said, to get reinforced and reinvigorated and then get back into the, into the fray. That's terrific. I mean, obviously not terrific that so many people are going through this, but terrific that you and others who have been through this are working on new and innovative ways to provide this kind of support and encouragement for people who, as I think you rightly say, are doing an enormous service for society, often at great personal cost. So I want to, uh, in, in, in wrapping up this interview, and you've been extremely generous with your time, I want to just emphasize again my, my personal admiration for you 
and others who like you have have done these sorts of things and also uh, my admiration for you and others who are taking those experiences and building on them to try to achieve genuine institutional reform at places like the UN, even though if that may seem sometimes like trying to push water uphill, uh, and also through systems like your proposed integ integrity sanctuary to provide that kind of su support. So uh, there's so much else we could have talked about. Your career has been so long and varied. Uh, I wish we had uh, even more time, but you've already been uh, so generous in sharing your experience and what you've learned from it. I just want to thank you again. It's been great having you on this episode of Kickback. So uh, for our listeners, our guest on this episode of Kickback has been uh, James Wasserstrom, who is uh, himself a whistleblower and has uh, had a long career in the UN, in the US government, and now in uh, private sector consulting, working to fight corruption and improve transparency and accountability. Uh, Jim, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Matthew. I appreciate every, everything. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Kickback. If you want to learn more about Jim's case against the UN, please check out the links in the show notes. As always, we want to thank our loyal Patreons for their support. You really help us moving this project forward. For all the listeners who are not yet Patreons, you can easily fix this by clicking on the link in the show notes. Every dollar, euro, pound or yen goes directly back into the podcast. For example, we really need a better technological setup in the future. If you want to get updates about Kickback, follow us on Facebook and Twitter under at KickbackGAP. That's at KickbackGAP. We are a joint production of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. Kickback is made by Niels Kürbis, Matthew Stevenson, Jonathan Kleinpass and me. My name is Christopher Starke. See you in two weeks. <laughs>